You're listening to Let's Talk About Skills, baby. I'm Kelly Ryan Bailey, and this season we're talking all about the great resignation. The global pandemic disrupted so much for so many, and one of the largest effects has been on where, when, why, and how we make a living. We're taking a look at why people have been shifting jobs, paths, and careers at such an accelerated rate, and how leaders from different industries are navigating this challenging time. Hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Skills Nerds. With me today is Phil Komarni and Dr. Mark Lombardi. Phil is the Chief Innovation Officer at Maryville University. Dr. Mark Lombardi is the President of Maryville University and the co-author of the book, Pivot, A Vision for the New University. I have really been looking forward to having Mark and Phil on the podcast. Phil and I have known each other for about 10 years, and I just learned that Mark and Phil have known each other for about that long as well. We bonded over our passion for creative innovation, living outside all the boxes, and especially around how others navigate their journey through work and education. Mark and I have the pleasure of getting to know each other right here today with you all. And let me tell you that anyone Phil has ever introduced me to has blown my mind. So I know that we will be experiencing the same thing with Mark today. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to Thanks, be here. Thanks, Of course. Well, Mark, I'm going to start off with a little bit of background with you, if you don't mind. I'd love to hear how you became passionate about higher education. Well, you know, I I started out dreaming, I think, of being a lawyer, and then I uh, got a heart and decided I didn't want to go into that field. You know, I've always been passionate about politics. I studied political science. I went to graduate school. And at Ohio State, what they do with grad students is they say, here, here's a here's a class, go teach it, no teacher training, anything. So we all get thrown into the classroom. And I found that I loved it. And I've been in higher ed ever since. So I was a faculty member for a number of years at different institutions. I just became passionate about education, not passionate about the politics of higher ed, not passionate about publishing and doing research. I became passionate about education and young people and all the different ways that they learn and that they process information and both as an academic, a faculty member, and then for many years and then getting into administration, I just became more and more fascinated. And what what drove me into administration really was one simple thing, which was it didn't make sense to me that so many young people were denied access to higher education because of standardized tests, which are crazy, or money, or all a whole bunch of other factors that really made higher ed a scarcity model and exclusionary. And so I vowed, if I ever had the opportunity, that that model needed to be disrupted significantly and eliminated for something new. And that's been something that's been driving me for a long time, And it really got a real boost of caffeine when I met Phil. (laughs) I can only imagine. Um, And the thought of breaking down all those barriers. I'm sort of envisioning you being thrown into the shark tank of this classroom (laughs) without (laughs) knowing what you're doing. I don't know why I'm thinking like Robin Williams style. What's that movie? (laughs) Oh, a dead poet society. (laughs) (laughs) What did you learn when you were put into that classroom, though? Because I think it's always so fascinating when you don't have a background in that and you're just sort of like, here, figure it out. There are three things I learned, okay? One was I think young people 
they uh, everyone wants to learn or can learn in different ways that's number one that uh, that the idea that everybody should learn the way i teach is crazy they all learn differently i think the second thing is everyone loves a story a narrative and so there are ways of reaching people through storytelling as opposed to simply spewing out information and expecting them to memorize it and then the third thing was that uh I was fascinated by the fact that, and I started reading a lot about in those days, this is back in the 80s, and I still do, about brain research and learning theory and brain theory. We've learned so much about how people process information and how it differs by all kinds of factors genetically and by gender and, and socioeconomic background, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been really fascinated with that because I believe that everyone has talent. I believe everyone can learn. Everyone can be successful. I don't believe in this notion that universities or anywhere else should be gatekeepers who decide who passes and who fails. I think everyone can be successful. I think we can graduate 100% of the people that we admit. I think 100% of the people we have here could be successful. I don't, I don't believe in the notion that by definition, it should be a scarcity model of access and then even a greater scarcity model when you talk about graduation and career success. What is it about education that you think everyone, I mean, I so wholeheartedly agree with everything that you're saying, by the way. So I'm like, yes, everyone should. But what is it? What is your belief around what does education offer for people? You mean how important is it or what has it failed yeah. to do? It well, yeah, I mean, you could probably answer both, but... <laughs> I think what higher ed over 120, 130 years, certainly in the Western world, what it evolved into was a ladder of sort of uh, a stacked ladder of, call it achievement, where unfortunately a group of people faculty and staff alike, decided that they could be the arbiters of who was going to be successful and how. I'm not saying that their judgment is wrong. I'm not saying their judgment is right. I'm saying that no one, not you, not me, not Phil, not anyone, can really sit there and take a group of 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 young people and say, you're going to be successful in life and you're not, or you've achieved and you haven't. I don't believe in that scenario. I think the reality is that everyone can be successful and everyone can achieve and everyone can learn. You just got to find the right key to unlock that lock. And I think the last 100 years have proven that when you look at the fact that some of the most uh, successful innovators and entrepreneurs in our society either didn't go to college or flunked out of college or whatever the case may be. So I think there's a power if you take education and not eliminate it, but you flip it into a model that says not it's all about the content, it's really all about the learner and how the person can learn. And if you empower people with technology and digital tools and things of that nature, then they all can find their niche and they all can be successful. I love that. So this book, that you publish, I think you co-publish it with Joanne Soliday. There's a quote in the book that really struck me and it was, but higher education is far from doomed. It is at this inflection point in which independent colleges and universities have the opportunity to revolutionize higher education. It is time to pivot towards a new university. What is a new university? What you just described? Well, yeah, in part, a new university, think of it this way, universities are filled, we were talking earlier about silos and, you know, departments and schools and athletics, they're filled with all these things, and those things are not inherently evil or bad, but 
The university is there for one reason, and that's to empower and educate the student, period. So if you, if you start not with the structure of the university, you start with the one fundamental truth that, that exists in a digital world today. It's always existed, but we know more about it now, and that's data. You know, uh, Beth Rudin says data is the artifact of the human experience. If you start with student data, and all this information about students and how they learn and the different ways they learn, whatever. And you build curriculum, you build experiences around that reality, and you empower students with the digital tools that are in their hands to take advantage of that. Then you change the whole matrix of what education is about. It doesn't mean colleges and universities go away. It means they're organized on a whole different set of assumptions and principles. And that's kind of what we're building here at Maryville University is restructuring the assumptions around the student and around student data to use it as an empowering tool for them to pursue their education as they go along. And by the way, pursue it for life. I mean, my dream, and, and I think I know Phil shares this, is once a student is connected in the Maryville network, the Maryville ecosystem of learning, they can be in that for life and can constantly return to it for skill development and, and further education and further experiences. It's, uh, I don't mean to be... Uh, simplistic but it's like having netflix you know some of us will spend an entire weekend binge watching netflix and other times you know you might not uh, examine it for a few weeks and you come back to it education should be that easy it should be that way that word empower i think is just such a strong reset language to use around education and also beth was another amazing introduction that phil made so i'm going to call her out again because you're exactly right and she said that before i just think that the way that you're talking about you know how people are empowered to navigate this life journey right because it's not that ladder anymore it's not this linear thing that's going to happen like you're going to go to school and all of these wonderful things are going to happen it's different and i think it's great the way you talked about that so, you know, the book was published pre-COVID. What have you learned since then that you were like, man, I should have put that in there? <laughs> I, I think uh, Joanne and I have talked about it. We would entitle the book now, Pivot Now, immediately. Because, uh, you know, what COVID has done, is, it, COVID hasn't changed the world. It's accelerated this digital revolution. I, I tell people all the time, it's not 2022. It's at least 2025 now that COVID has accelerated the digital revolution, and it's created an even greater imperative on changing the matrix around verticals like education. I, I would argue it's true about healthcare. It's true about a number of different things out there. They need to revolutionize and reform themselves now. And tinkering around the edges is not revolution. Uh, it's not it's not change. It's just it's it's basically, you know, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic is what it amounts to. It, it, we've got to have a fundamental uh, revolution in higher ed. It has to be based on the student and on student data and uh, around the democratization of knowledge, which exists now across the globe. You used to have to go to universities to get content and knowledge. No longer. You can, you can access that content and knowledge uh, anywhere. What you need are faculty and people to facilitate that access and that democratization of knowledge to help students and to help learners progress towards their goals. And that's been the fundamental shift. And and in, in my mind, the COVID has just accelerated that. It's made it even more important to do it now. 
I hear you. You know, it's interesting too, like I have on my board back here, two of the words, I I usually pick like five theme words for my year and democratize and transparency, those kinds of things are on that list, follow your creativity. (laughs) But, but I'm just laughing that you said that because I, I think it's so true. You know, I can, if I wanted to go and learn something really quick, I can just pick up a you know, go to YouTube and look something up and, you know, figure out how to do that thing. But, you know, sometimes it's just really a challenging one. um, And you need someone to help, you know, someone to call and say, and I can completely see that a lot of schools think when you say these kinds of things, like, oh, my gosh, we're going to lose all these things. And it's the same way they talk about automatization in the workplace. I'm like, it's actually not taking away. It's, making something better it might shift and adjust things that's scary right but it doesn't make it worse historically we've always had it i started uh, a couple of years ago i started reading i love history and i love i that's what i do in my spare time is is read all kinds of history and i started reading letters by people who were born in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, but were living in the 1920s. And how were they talking about the technological changes that they had witnessed in their life? You know, being born in 1850 on a farm and living in the 1920s, you're talking about cars and electricity and phone, you know, all these things that they didn't. And they talk about that those technological changes the same way people my age talk about uh, revolution in the digital world. They talk about, you know, bemoaning this and wishing that and uh, isn't it terrible that these young people are in their phones? Now they don't know how to communicate. And all these, what I consider crazy notions about the negatives of technological or digital change. And so it's not, it, my point is, it's not new. Human beings have been resisting change uh, for a long, long time. In higher ed, we, we have a unique opportunity to usher in a golden age of education in this decade and beyond. This could be a century of educational empowerment for hundreds of millions of people who never had access to higher ed before in their lives. But the problem obviously is when you talk about people giving up control, they always look at that as a binary choice. I either have control or I have no control. And, and the real truth here is higher ed can reshape itself. Yes. Empowering students means you're not the sage on the stage anymore, right? You're the guide on the side. But in relinquishing that role, you open up opportunities of learning and empowerment and access and opportunity for people of color and underrepresented groups. You you unleash talent that, that we have never before seen. And I feel like when you consider that sort of, you know, guide, I love the way you actually, that reminds me of someone else that I know she calls herself a guide, um, not a sage on the stage. But I think it's, it's fascinating when you think about it that way, because a lot of times that guide learns just as much along that process as well. Oh, yeah. And, and there's the reservoir of talent that exists that's been, that's untapped for a variety of reasons. That's the talent we need to solve the problems that humanity faces today. I mean, if I said to you, we can put 50 white guys in a room to try to cure cancer, or we could put 5,000 diverse people and scientists in a room to cure cancer, which, which group's gonna get to the cure faster? I mean, I know. It, and I hope we don't have to answer this question. <laughs> <for> <laughs> So if you for you on your journey, and let's let's call it this like disruption in education viewpoint that you started with at the beginning that you described, Mark, 
If you had to say, these are the top three skills that I have that has gotten me through to this point, what would they be? Boy, that's a great question. Uh, At the risk of sounding self-serving, I would say uh, the first would be grit. you know, I, I grew up in a working class neighborhood and a working class background, and I went to school. Every I've always been in school and, and working at universities where I'm surrounded by a lot smarter people than I am. But the one thing that I refuse to do is give up. And so, you know, when I was getting my PhD at Ohio State and, and all these smart people around me and they were dropping out for all kinds of reasons, I said, I said, bullshit, I'm going to finish this thing. I'm going to get it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to move forward. So I'd say grit is probably the first thing. I think the second thing is that I I don't know when it happened. It happened sometime 20 years ago, maybe. I really started looking at education from a student perspective and not from a faculty member or administrative perspective. And once I did that, all kinds of things were opened up to me. So I think the ability to put yourself in the shoes of someone else, and, and you know, most of my friends would not consider me uh, empathetic human being stylistically, or um, you know, I, I I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty rough around the edges. But I really do think once I started looking at it through the student lens, that it opened up all kinds of things. And I, you know, the third skill I think um, is I believe these. What we're talking about, revolutionizing higher ed and creating access and opportunity for millions of people who haven't had it, I think that's so important, and I'm so passionate about it that I have no problems talking about it. So I guess the third skill is I, I'm not I'm not shy about laying it on the line with anybody about this and how important it is and how sometimes it can it can make people feel uncomfortable, especially when they're thinking about you know, they're losing their their role or their perceived role. I had a faculty member, not here, another institution, we were talking, and he said to me, I didn't sign up for this 20 years ago, basically talking about access and opportunity. And I said, this is a digital world. No one signed up for anything today 20 years ago. There's change everywhere. You know, 20 years ago, we had no iPads, no uh, smartphones, no on and on and on. I said, we living in a world of maximum change and disruption. And and I said, basically, you better get used to it because it's not slowing down, it's speeding up. That's great. So Phil, now that we're talking a little bit about innovation here, pivot for a moment, what sparked your passion for innovation and learning and employment journeys? Wow, geez, what sparked my my passion for this is just, I think the way I was brought up, I was an army brat who had to kind of learn how to make friends every other year. We'd move to another town and have to have this skill set of being able to be vulnerable and just make new friends. That was like a key, a key component to who I am today is being able to communicate really innovative things or different things. Or what's the difference? Like Mark just spoke about a faculty member who was, you know, having trouble trying to see the future through the past. I think being able to see the future and be able to create language for people to kind of understand it is where my skill set has kind of grown towards. And now I think right now, because of COVID and what just happened, digital became a first class citizen. So it's not like, hey, can we zoom into this meeting? Now it was like an imperative for two years. So we saw 
all that change forced on everybody. So it wasn't like, hey, do I want to do this? I don't have a choice anymore. And what do we come out of it knowing is that, oh, that change wasn't so hard. Everybody was like, well, that kind of worked. But now we can't go back to where we were. That doesn't exist anymore. So what do we do to move it forward? Access and opportunity is the biggest thing I think we have a chance to solve because of digital. We all can't be in, you know, Maryville's beautiful campus, but I could be here in my office and I can have these meetings and, and really participate in that culture just as well as I'm on campus. So why can't a learner learn that way? So again, go back to languages. I think universities, I think that language is wrong. I think it's multiversities. I think that's where this is all leading towards. If we think one university is going to solve this, tell me who it is, because it's everybody's problem to solve, but it takes a new way to solve it. And that's what I'm really passionate about. And that's why I'm working at Maryville, because I believe that that culture is the place that's going to emanate from. They've already thought about these things when they didn't have to, when digital was a second-class citizen. Everybody was like, oh, it's nice to have these mobile apps and things like that. But now... We've seen, I don't have to be in this place. I can be anywhere and still have this experience. So that alone, when I think about how talent is distributed and opportunity isn't, we have now, we have a modality, we can actually get opportunity to that talent. And it's through education. So it's not like this moment in time is going to happen again, this kind of disruption. It feels like this like super imperative moment, you know, that it's like, we have to act now. I want to go back to this sort of change for you. So just I'm going to come back to your journey for a second, Phil, because I find, you know, what you described in your youth, change was inevitable for you. And after a while, it just became this thing you embraced where you were like, okay. And I love to hear how you described what most people experienced in COVID who were so fearful of change. And then they were like, whoa, I was able to adjust and pivot and make this work. Like what? Um, But for you, that was just inherent in your everyday. And I just find that really, really fascinating. So before we jump more into the work that's happening at Maryville, Tell us a little bit more about, you know, what things you did, you know, between being that military, <laughs> military brat, as you described to now Maryville. Well, wow, that's a long journey, but it's, it uh, is. yeah, it was, you know, I was really always not afraid to learn new things or be uncomfortable. I was comfortable, with the, comfortable being uncomfortable. That's what my childhood made me, I guess. But the internet happened when I was in high school. So 1985. There was no schools teaching internet. There was literally, you know, ONET still had internet programmer in their in their job descriptions. But uh, I, I really took that time to really investigate the digital world myself. So really learned like digital because again, my background was my my upbringing was being uncomfortable. So how can you be more uncomfortable with this thing? Didn't know what a modem was. No idea how to connect it to anything. And in like a year and a half, I had I build a little ISP in my basement that like for my little town where people were getting online and, you know, learning together. And I saw that digital community happen then. And now I just think it's now it's like in front of us and it's been positioned by companies uh, remain nameless, but uh, we all know them that have really turned people into products. And I think we all hear Web3, and I think Web3 is a very charged word because there's a lot of bad connotations around that. But when we start to think about Web3, I think products for people, not people as products. And we can do that in this digital space. But 
the progression of being uncomfortable, being welcome to the internet and being able to just kind of find, you know, find my passion that way. I just think this, this modality of digital gives anybody an opportunity where it's not where you went to school. It's really who you know. It's how, how can I get involved in a community of practice and get inspired? I saw it happen at Salesforce with Trailhead. Four million people interested in using a CRM in a community of practice. Unbelievable amount of learning happens there. But how can we do that now, moving this forward with all this tech in front of us and now digital being a first-class citizen? There's ways to treat data differently where we don't have to store it. We can share it and create relationships with our, with our learners or customers. So there's all these new digital levers we can pull to make like trust and you know, digital much more, I don't know, palatable to people or much more translatable to people. From where I started, all new language. What was a modem? How do I plug this in? Like, this is all new. Now, this is like commonplace, but we've still turned it into a tech world where only certain people can participate. Everybody should participate in this. And again, we were forced to for two years. So it's not like we can't. We know we can. But now what do we do to make it even better for people? So I think it's, it's that progression that I'm super interested in. And being uncomfortable made me into who I am today and being able to be comfortable just learning. Uh, there's well, there's so I mean, there's so much in there to unpack. And 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 one last question before we do, because, you know, you've you've called out a couple of what I would refer to as skills that have helped you be successful in, you know, coming along this journey for you, your life journey. And I definitely feel like change being adapt to change was one of those. Um, what are the two other thing, you know, two other skills that you would call out that you were like, oh, thank goodness. Wow. I had Curiosity. to learn that the hard way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if yeah. I learned it, but just being curious. I mean, my mom, my mom had always, I mean, mom was an artist. So she was really taught me how to paint and always let, let me just go explore the world, like, and come back and ask questions. I mean, that's just what I was, the way I was taught. But there's just, so many different skills, but empathy is another one. I think being able to create language and be able to translate really complex things like you want to get into verifiable credentials and talk about this stuff, we better create a language everybody can understand because it's very hard. It's very complex. I think being able to be empathetic to that empathy. You really do seem to understand very deeply, you know, when you talk about that, like, let's build this for people as opposed to making people the product. You know, I really, I've always seen that thread throughout all of your work. So I have to agree there. So what advice would you give someone that's starting out, someone that might be like a younger version of you, right? When they were starting out and they had some of these thoughts and at the time it didn't make sense, what advice would you give them? When there's nobody to teach what you want to learn, just follow your passion. But I think like we're seeing it right now with Web3, with all this crazy stuff around NFTs and all this new world being developed. With no language at all, people don't even understand cryptography and we're doing all this stuff. There's such an opportunity for people to get involved in that and make it into a world that we all want to make it, not a world that we're going to take all this value from. So I think there's nobody training in that world yet. Again, it's another another instance of where I experienced the internet coming to life. Now we're seeing Web3 come to life. We would call it Web3 whatever, but this new way to think about our digital world. And I think it's going to be a lot more personal. And there's huge opportunities in there for people. It's not, there's no way to define it though. There's no way to say, hey, go do that and you'll be successful. 
It's no, it's go be curious and listen to people and you'll be successful. That's about all the, that's about all the uh, advice I could give anybody. No, that's such amazing advice. Well, you, I, I need to hear how did you guys meet? I mean, I know what, like around the time and where you guys met, but like what pulled you guys together? Go ahead, Mark. Well, we were at a Salesforce conference. Uh, I was presenting from Maryville's perspective, and and we connected afterwards, or just started, you know, talking, and and found out that from very different experiences, because my knowledge of uh, technology is uh, about a mile wide and an inch deep, and and of course Phil's extremely knowledgeable. But we we realized that philosophically, we were coming at this thing from the same perspective. And I think that that was great. So we looked for each other at different conferences and different things and kept in touch. We just connected, shared. He'd come out and visit. He was helping advise us with what we were doing. And it all kind of sort of clicked together. And then uh, during COVID and, and of course, running a university during a pandemic, I don't wish that on my worst enemy. And you can imagine how difficult it's been, but we've got great people here. But he called me up a year ago and he said, uh, can you come to Colorado for a day? And at that meeting that we could talk about, all the things that Phil and I have been talking about from our different perspectives sort of crystallized and came together. It's sort of like uh, you got this huge jigsaw puzzle and you finally are to the point where you know you're going to put the pieces and they're going to fit. It was a revelation. And and then I said, well, you know, Phil, if we're going to do this, uh, you got to get a divorce and uh, to Salesforce, not from his wife, and, and come work at Maryville. And he said yes, and we've been running ever since. That's a long so. courting period, Phil. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's terrible, but you know, I've learned a lot around marriages and things, and you know, it's, it was it was worth the time. But I really, I, I, Mark tells the story so well, and it, it's hundred percent true. I think one thing I've learned about innovation, it has nothing to do with good ideas. It's all about timing. It's all about timing. Does not matter. These ideas have been around for a while. This is, you know, I worked at UT. We had these ideas back then. There was before that there were ideas. Timing Problem and is, execution. <laughs> timing and execution. Can you do it? And is it time to do it? Yeah. You should. I think that's the one question I've been asking myself for the last you know, year is, is it time? And that's when I did call Mark. It is time. Come to Denver. Let's show you something that I see and everybody in the room saw too. I just wanted to see if he saw it. I didn't want to like prep him at all just if you can get your butt to denver let's just let's just sit you in a room for a couple hours and see what happens and exactly what i thought would happen happened because the solution isn't invention it's literally baking a cake i mean and the cake that we're baking i think is going to be meaningful to a lot of people in a lot of different ways not just you know coming up this solution or this problem in education Everybody's been doing it. You, there's a big micro-credential thing happening today. There's a, you know, a big conference. IMS Global so have this great big conference. You know why I didn't go to it, Kelly? I looked at their big schedule. You know how many learners they had talking there? Zero. Not one. So how are we really defining a new world to educate people and not talking to one student? Not one. That's why digital credentials and all that world is trying to sol- solve a problem, not sol- to really solution it. The solutions around the piece parts of that, the badge is irrelevant, irrelevant. Where the data resides, super important. So we're now we're trying to come at it with a total solution that can show 
not just how we badge something or how we give a credential away. I mean, we've done, I've heard that talk for 20 years and it's not doing anything. What we've done is try to create a solution that inspires businesses, inspires universities, inspires learners. It has a solution for all three. And if we can get that system out to show that solution, now I think we have something interesting. It's not just about badging. It's not just about credentialing. It's not just about skills. There's a lot in the solution that's going to give the university a way to turn into a multiversity or really adopt some of this thinking without much investment. Because again, if we want to revolutionize this space, we better find a way to do it that's low cost and hyper valuable. And we've done that. I got to jump in and say, too, that when you when you look at it from this perspective of data, as Phil is outlining, and, and he can speak to much better than I, you flip the script completely from a, from a university or a faculty or an administrative construct to a student construct. And, and once you do that, all these other things open up. What I mean by that is not just us understanding how learners learn, but learners understanding how they learn. So, for example, it's always a revelation for every human being, no matter what your age or whatever, when you figure out that I, I can actually learn how to do this. I can learn how to cook. I can learn how to do this. I can, I can paint. I can do this or that. It's always incredibly empowering. And, and instead of taking the approach of, well, I need somebody always to sort of teach me, if you, if you use student data and you use this really sophisticated depth of knowledge and you empower them with that, then all of a sudden avenues of opportunity open up for them. You know, so many things that students and learners have trouble learning because they're afraid. I don't know math or I don't know this. Or I, uh, if you take away that element through empowering them with their own data, through a network that, that, that we're creating, we're building, then all of a sudden they're in control of their learning. They're still faculty, there are still content experts, there are still different people along the way guiding and facilitating and helping and where needed, coaching, but the journey belongs to them. And I'll even take it a little further. And once that happens, the business model of higher ed becomes radically different. We believe that we can make higher ed accessible and affordable. And I, when I say affordable, I don't mean you get 10% off or something like that. I'm talking about a subscription model where instead of spending 40000 a year, you're spending 50 or or $100 a month. I can really attest to the when you figure out the best way that you learn. I came from, I know like when I was in school, I got by, it was, okay, it was all right, but um, it was just not something that was a pleasurable experience. My entire family seemed to be like geniuses that never had to study and that was just not the case with me. And then one day it all clicked for me that I was like, oh my gosh, I don't learn very well from people telling me things. Um, I learned very well from doing it and getting my hands dirty. And then it, things started to click for me. And I thought something was wrong with me all like for years, I mean, years of my life. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, I just don't work that way. And that construct was the way that society wanted me to act. And I just couldn't fit into that box at all yeah the the, the is perfect example because i think all and and when i speak to groups 
all over here and around the country about this. That fact that you just said, Kelly, everybody has that experience at some point with school or with learning, or they have somebody in their family or some, they all have that experience, that shared experience. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I, you know, or, or, and, and even more importantly, this idea that like it was ordained by God, right? I, I don't know how to write or I can't learn math or, or I'm bad at science. The reality is people are not bad at anything. It's just finding how they learn and the way they learn and unlocking that. I, you know, pedagogy for, for a thousand years, any kind of teaching was determined by the teacher, right? The teacher dictated how the classes were taught. We're talking about using data so that the learner decides the pedagogy. Uh, the learner decides how, how they best learn. If they best learn by doing, then they should be doing. If they best learn by reading, let them read. If they be, you know, and, and empowering them in that way. You're not a hostage to the particular style of pedagogy of the instructor. It's just amazing to think of people with like whatever makes them unique being able to lean into that in some way. I mean, you guys, we're like teasing out a lot of things here, Phil. I know you're jump in in a second, but I want to hear about all of this. I'm like, tell me, what is it? You've made this big announcement and we we, like we're we're salivating. (laughs) Yeah, life track. I mean, it's um, it's something that it is the ecosystem, I think, that we can, you know, instantiate that will allow change to happen in this space through learning. But this ecosystem, it's its starting to be, it's based on a blockchain. So let's start there around catalyst of verifiable individual data. But with that, with that in focus, Kelly, the verifiable credential standard is part of this timing. So that's a standard that's in the world now, a way to allow data to be verifiable at the edge of a network. So with a customer, with a learner, with a person, starting to unlock ways that personal data stores can happen. So if we can give our learners that data that Mark just said about themselves, why don't we focus an AI with that ontological view that you just saw with Beth Rudin? Now we have a protector AI or a bot that's sitting there right next to that person that lets them see themselves and start to really have a digital twin of themselves to let them see the future through. That's empowerment. So this platform that allows somebody to be persistent with their own data or transient with their own data, skills representation of that. What does it mean for a specific demographic of people? We're going to start with nurses because nurses in this world today are completely underserved. It's a demographic that's completely stressed out and has been you know, through the fire. I mean, that was the frontline workers for two years now. And we're coming out of it with like a half a million of them going to retire in 2022. I mean, it's even going to exacerbate itself. So how can we get more leader nurses, leadership, people with those skills in that, in that demographic? So starting to do a proof of concept with them to show a company how we can grow more nurses into leadership skills by allowing them to give them a representation of them, their data and be able to put them on learning pathways that are individualized based on where they're starting because we know their skills profile and this is where we want them to go. Guess what? Everybody learns differently. Everybody's going on a different journey. So it might be shorter for Mark. It might be longer for me. It might be one step for you and 20 steps for somebody else. But through one system, we can do that. Now, the way we treat data for people is what we just talked about. The way we treat that learning data or the content is another big problem in in the education space. We put it in a silo called a course. 
and try to deliver it through an LMS. And that limits everything we do, literally limits it. So if we start to take a page out of publishing, a way, way that we can look at digital assets and create a management platform that allows those assets to be used in any modality, at any time, any frequency, in any type of front end. So we want to create an endless front end with a digital asset management system that allows this, this content to persist and be updated at a very at a rate we don't see today through curricular design. So here's a new mechanism that inspires universities to treat their content differently. The third part of the innovation is the skilling, uh, an AI that aligns skills to both the course catalog or what they're offering and what the, what the business is asking for. But the interesting part is, I think the validation of a skill doesn't happen in the academic space. We taught them what we said we were going to convey to them. Checks for understanding happen in learning environments. But whenever I learn something and I demonstrate it, that's when I think a credential should be issued. And if we have a way to persist that data in the pocket of somebody at the edge, that becomes a reputation credential that's backed by the reputation of a business or a university. But now it's with me. So we're starting to get that data set now becomes even more empowering and more and more that I can, I can own myself and build that myself. So that ecosystem, all that stuff together is life track and how we're going to show that through nursing is first. But we have a lot of great ideas that would come after, but that's where we're starting. We're not suggesting that the new university wipes out what people think of as a university experience. For example, 18-year-olds are going to want to get away from their parents. They're going to want to live with their peers. They're going to want to uh, have a collegiate experience. We've learned that through COVID. Our, our students wanted to be here on campus. They wanted to be engaged and involved. But what we're talking about is, is really that experience, I think, that residential kind of a collegiate experience is always going to be a part of the equation, I think, at least in my lifetime. But I also think that what it really involves is this whole new way of thinking about the educational journey, the validation, if you will, of, of the learning in a modular kind of way rather than you take a course and at the end you get a grade. I mean, that's antiquated notion. Rather, students understanding and owning the building of their skill set and their knowledge set as they go in a way that really empowers the, the, each of the sets of choices that they make. So instead of the idea of, you know, you got to take 101 and 102 and 202 and 203 and, two, you know, you got to go through this long alphabet list of things in order to, quote unquote, make it. It's really a, a question of how do you amass these skills? Now, just as a aside, there's always going to be professions nursing may be one of them, being a doctor, being an engineer, where there'll be certain prescribed professional experience that you have to have in order to be a member of that club, right? I've got to do X, Y, and Z before they'll let me uh, be an engineer and build a bridge, for example, or whatever. But it still doesn't change the fact that how you, the, the network within which you amass those skills is along the lines of what Phil is talking about. It can't be uh, engineered no pun intended, that way. And that's really the exciting part about this because then you open up a whole set of experiences and possibilities for the learner, lifelong learner, I might add, that they never would have had before. They never it would sounds have like this beautiful dream. And, and maybe it's only because, as Phil knows, like we've been dreaming about this for so, so long. Um, I love that the time is right 
the technology is. is where it needs to be. There were so many times in the past that we were like, oh, this is a thing. And then it was like, well, there's certain technologies that didn't exist um, that wouldn't have made it possible. So there's one thing just to be a little bit provocative here. Let's talk about the employer side of this for a moment, right? Because, you know, I start to think through, and I'm sure everyone that has been in this for a while might start to think through some of the barriers to moving forward with kind of like solving for this challenge, right? And I I always find this fascinating, the idea that how do you guys think about employers feel like something needs to be verified with something right? Maybe it is the educational, like it's the degree or the certification or the, and, and with certain things like nursing, engineering, like you described, yes, they might exist, but how does that, what needs to change from an employer standpoint? Well, I'll just say quickly, we've been, we've, we've got a program here. We started two years ago and I won't go into all the details, but we've been working with a number of companies in the St. Louis region on this. And here's what we've learned. And and it's fascinating, Kelly. Employers don't much care anymore where you went to school, what your GPA was, or any of those things. They want to know, can you do or do you have the capacity to learn what we want you to learn in order to be successful? And can you continuously learn as you go? So what we did was we built an entire program around that concept of skill development, upskilling, which is a common term that you hear. And that from a collegiate standpoint, meaning education for in this case, you know, if you want to think of the traditional student, this network will have will have a multiple ways for a student to verify for an employer, yes, I know how to do X, Y, and Z. The best analogy I can think of in this is more of a, a of like an art portfolio, right? Artists and graphic designers and interior designers, you don't walk in and say, I got a 3.8 in interior design, hire me. What they all want to do is see your portfolio. They want to see your work. And I think what we're going to have in the, in, a, in the near future is that all learners, no matter what age, will develop a portfolio of their work and their experiences. And that will be the key thing that employers are looking for. And it's just, it's fascinating to hear you say that because it's when you think about the traditional hiring experience, what, and we won't, we won't even go down that rabbit hole, but basically <laughs> it does not allow for any technology at this point to read what is involved in a portfolio. Um, so. Yeah, if it does, it's completely biased and it's BS, Kelly. Exactly. You know? Going back to this, you know, experience for learners, lifelong learners, you know, a lot of times we tend to talk about the whatever, again, not in a ladder concept, more of a lattice concept, but where their next moves might be professionally, especially when you think of nurses. I mean, it, it, it that field tends to have a little bit more of a structure to movement, but how much is there, you know, what am I interested in or what am I adept at um, involved in yeah. some of the information that's being fed back to them. That's that's the really interesting thing about that profile of themselves. They can start to like investigate it themselves. I think that's a big innovation is showing something of their data that inspiring them with it through a UI that makes sense to them. Right now, where where does that happen? Where do we have a representation of ourselves? Exactly. There isn't anywhere. There is LinkedIn. That's not our data. That's Microsoft's data. So it starts to get to that point. I think Showing somebody that, that that representation of themselves is where we're going to start to get some 
language, I think that's what everybody deserves, is that ability to see themselves. Now, like Mark said, grit. Not everybody's got grit like Mark or any of us on this call. I think we're all pretty successful in our lives, but it does take work. So it's not like some magic bullet that's going to get you to some future state all by itself, like a teleporter. It's literally, this is you. Now go work your way to the future. So I think we can unlock people's grit through direction with data. And that's where right now, today, it's like, go course catalog it, find what you're passionate about. And maybe that's the right curricular journey for you. But again, to Mark's part, go ahead, Mark. It's easy to give up on anything personally or professionally if you don't care about it. If you really care about it, it's hard to give up. It's hard to quit. And so it's unlocking uh, passion and, and engagement. And also for young people, I would say particularly, it's helping young people, particularly young people who've been underserved, that, yeah, they have a whole host of talents. And the first thing you do is you go hold a mirror up to those talents and help them to see their talent, whatever that is. Once they do, then all kinds of passion gets unleashed. Uh, it's we, we talk about that so often, just like what, you know, because this concept of transferable skills, like generally speaking, we don't necessarily even we've all struggled with answering the question, what three skills, right? Because you're like, well, I don't want to, you know, I mean, it's hard. It's, it's hard because you don't want to think of yourself in that way. It's sometimes hard to figure out what the language is. It's sometimes hard to know what your experiences have led you to like be unique like it's just sometimes hard to figure that out remember education uh, k through 12 higher ed it has conditioned us to answer the skill question like what do i know so instead of talking about whether it's you know empathy or grit or these kinds of things which actually are fundamentally more important than than knowledge Okay, you know, we've been taught to say, well, you know, I'm a political, I was trained as a political scientist, so I know politics. Well, that's not a skill. And frankly, it's a universe of content that that may easily is transferable in a whole variety of ways. You know, if, if you have empathy, like Phil, there are a whole host of things you can do in life, right? As opposed to saying, I'm a chemical engineer. Well, Yeah, you may be very good chemical engineer, but that's not a skill. I think this is such a valid point. You know, when I think about, I'm going to share with you guys, I have this dream that we will also be able to include what skills we learn. And I say, I use the word skills. It could mean lots of things, right? But what we learn through life experience that actually make us better professionals. And I think we've all been talking about a lot of those things throughout this conversation today, grit, empathy. Um, You know, I think about Phil describing his experience as a child in the military and, you know, what, you know, us collectively, globally going through this pandemic and being open to like realizing that, in fact, oh, yes, we are quite strong and able to change. But there's a lot of things that happen, you know, from our own individual and perspectives in our lives I would love to unlock that and be able to process that through our journey too. Are how are you guys thinking at all about Go ahead, that? Phil. I know I know you are. No, I definitely am. I think that's that you've said it so well, Kelly. That's the that's the that's the motivational effect I think we can unlock. I mean, once we show somebody that, that's the holy grail to me. And if we can get somebody to that understanding, that would be amazing. 
Okay, so you guys, I have one more question. What is something you know now that you wish you knew when you got started? Um, I think mine is definitely innovations about timing. I've been in too many rooms holding my drink in the corner and the room's dark and there's nobody there yet. That's, that's my story of innovation. Great ideas. Everybody loves my drink when I show it to them once they finally get into the room. But now I think timing's everything. So timing is what I learned. Well, it's, um, I really started to think about the student differently. I mentioned about 20 years ago and I, but before that I had, I had been teaching for 15, 16 years. And I feel as if those 15, 16 years of teaching, I was letting the students down, uh, because I, I think it was at that time, I thought it was all about me and, and how I presented information, et cetera, and not all about them. And, and I regret that because I know you know, I can still picture certain students sitting in the back looking bored as tears about whatever. And now I realize those, stu I didn't, those students didn't fail. I failed them. And I wish that I had these notions, even though I certainly wouldn't have had the tech savvy to be able to bring them to fruition. I wish I felt this way then. I think I would have been able to... Uh, to do a better service to to a lot more students if I had so I wish I wish I thought this way 30 years ago instead of just 20. Wow that's so inspiring Mark what a perfect note to end us on <laughs> well thank you both so much for joining us today I know that whoever has the opportunity to listen into this episode is just going to bring, it's going to bring so much value to them, especially with those last remarks from Mark, because I think, you know, we really tried to put that all into this, you know, where it's not about us at all. Um, for you guys should really be keeping an eye on what's going on with Phil and Mark and Maryville. You can follow Phil on LinkedIn and Twitter. You can follow Mark on LinkedIn, and you can also follow Maryville University on LinkedIn or Twitter. So I highly suggest getting out there and finding more information. Will LifeTrack have its own thing, or will that just go through Maryville? Uh, it's gonna. We're still working out some of those details, but it'll be it'll be its own thing. Okay, so we'll have to make sure once we have that information, we'll share it with you all as well because this is some fascinating work that will likely change the way that our future of education and work look and also a lot of lives out there. That's the hope. Hope so. Thanks for tuning in to Let's Talk About Skills, Baby, a Growth Network podcast production. If any part of this episode resonated with you, we would love for you to share it with a friend or colleague who might feel the same. Feel free to reach out to me at Kelly Ryan Bailey on social and learn more about the great events and initiatives we have coming up at skillsbaby.com. Thanks again for spending some time with me. And most importantly, have a great day.